If I can have everyone's attention, we'll get going. Uh, I, I'm really hoping and praying that this forum uh, meets some of you where you are. And uh, it was designed, you know, mostly for those that are in uh, high school and at university that undoubtedly in your relationships in class or in your private relationships, you know, we discuss things with each other. And these are five questions that I call the big five. That's a little bit presumptuous on my part. I think there are other questions that are big ones also. But questions that we frequently field that we feel really challenges some of the things that we believe. Sometimes uh, they're honest questions that are posed to us. And let's assume for right now that they're all honest questions that come our way. Occasionally somebody wants to grill you on something, but let's not worry about that right now. These are assuming honest questions that people are asking. And quite often we as Christians feel ourselves to be a little bit inferior in knowing how to answer these questions. And the purpose of this forum is to... um, help show you that Christians are thinking people like anyone else in this world that God created. And there are very good answers that we can provide to these questions that take some effort, but they're very good answers. And I wanted to start off a little bit by um, <clears throat> telling you guys a little bit something about me. I don't know, some of you know me, some of you might know me, but a couple points that you should know about me. Something about my family. I have a dog. I have a car, I have a house, I want to introduce you to some of these things. This is my family, that was in Whiteface, Whiteface Mountain this past winter. This is my dog, Bernie's Mountain Dog, that was a couple months ago, he's a lot bigger than that now. This is my car, this is my house. So now you guys know everything about me. I don't know anything about you, but let's jump into uh, what I call the big five questions. Okay? What is the meaning of life? Simple question. Tough, tough answer. I hope you guys are pitying me. You feel sorry for me? Who feels sorry for me? Oh, man, a lot more of you guys should be feeling sorry for me. (laughs) Trying to answer these questions. Okay, what is the meaning of life? As if I'm supposed to know, right? How do we know that the Christian God is real? If God is so loving and all-powerful, why is there so much suffering in this world? These are classic questions, right? They're not new questions. These have been some of the questions that for generation after generation have been coming our way. What about the historicity of Jesus? That means the historical accuracy of Jesus and the resurrection. How can Christians claim that Christ is the only way? Is the only way out of many? Okay, let's talk, before we jump into the details of these questions, let's talk a little bit about the road. The road to getting these answers. First, we're going to need to talk a little bit about the notion of philosophy. Okay, that's a scary thing, you know, philosophizing. We're not supposed to be doing that, you know. Something you got to stay away from. Well, I'm going to point out to you that it's inevitable. And it's actually not something I don't think that we should be staying away from, but we need to talk a little bit about what it is, how it meets us in our lives. Some basic vocabulary that we're going to have to get down pat with each other, just so that we got the same definitions of some words. And the presuppositions of the big five. You don't know what that word means yet, but to presuppose something. Let you guess a little bit before we get there the presuppositions of the big five. In other words, what people are thinking before they even ask the questions. Very, very important. And then to look at some, what I believe to be confident answers are to these five questions. Okay? The basic approach then is to get a broader framework of understanding the context of these questions. Don't just jump right into an answer without really understanding the background of the question. It's all critical in understanding the background and the context of the questions. To give you a little bit of a pattern for answering these kinds of questions, you're going to see with the different answers, a little bit of a pattern is going to be developing that I believe is a good 
pattern for answering all of them. Not the only pattern, but a good pattern for answering them. You know, to encourage you to learn the questions and to learn the answers. You know what, there are not that many questions like this that people will typically throw at you. To be honest, there's only about 10. 10 or 15 questions that are the big questions, that are the real challenging ones. Learn the questions, learn the answers to the questions. It's not that difficult. And I, it's just a life skill. It's a life skill in one's Christian life to, to know where these questions are coming from, how to get there. So this forum is really more of a support. Okay, This is not to tell you how to answer. This is to encourage you, give you some ideas, give you some support. Maybe with your own quest to these answers. Let me ask you this. How many of you out there honestly would like to pose one of those five questions? You don't need to say which one. But how many of you out there, if you got a chance, would like to pose one of those five? None of you. I can't hardly believe it. Nobody, the meaning of life. Is anybody asking themselves about that question? Is anybody asking themselves, you know, if God is so powerful, why is there so much suffering in this world? Nobody has ever asked themselves that question? You guys got all the answers? Or Okay, this is what, you know, hopefully they're, they're questions that are not irrelevant. They're either posed to you or maybe even ones that you're uh, wrestling with yourself. So, okay. <clears throat> what, okay, let me ask you this. What is the nature of these questions? When you look at all five of them, what's the meaning of life? What's the reason for suffering? You know, how do we know that God really exists? Is Christianity the only way? Is the historical account of Jesus and the resurrection historically accurate? If you had to sum up those questions, how would you generalize them? What is the nature of those questions? Okay. Well, let me help you out here. I mean, they're philosophic questions. You know, what is the meaning of life? You better believe is a philosophic question. All of them fall into that same basic category, okay? Now, you're going to say, whoa, 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 hold on in here. What do you mean, okay, that these are philosophic questions? You know, you know what do you mean by that? Well, maybe we need to talk a little bit about the notion of philosophy and philosophers. Who are they? Who are people that are philosophers? Okay? You know, you can ask, are folks that ask these questions philosophers? I mean, is that really what you're trying to tell me? That the people that ask these questions are philosophers? My honest answer is, yeah. Actually, I think that they are. I think that they are philosophers. I think that you're all philosophers. Okay, we might look a little bit about, you know, who is a philosopher? You know, what makes a person a philosopher? You know, let's take a little bit closer look about, you know, what does it mean to pose philosophic questions, answer philosophic questions? A philosopher is a person that has been born in the image of God. Right, that's my definition. Because we've been born in God's image, we've been given emotions, we've been given character, we've been given feelings. All of these things, in my view, are being created in the image of God. Okay. And only a person that has that kind of complexity to them can be a philosopher. But that's something that God gave us. God, in essence, gave us the tools to even ask these kinds of questions. A philosopher is a person who poses thoughtful, serious questions. Not more complicated than that. Doesn't need to be more complicated than that. Philosopher is a person that has a worldview. Okay. Some people are just too simple. You know, mentally they have problems and they, they don't have a worldview. But, I mean, a person has a worldview. All of you, I'm sure, have a worldview. Okay? In the language of philosophy, you know, a, a lot of philosophy is in German. You know, it's called Weltanschauung. But that word is so popular, actually, that most people, a lot of people in the English language know. If you use the word Weltanschauung, they know what that means. Okay? It's a person's worldview. And a serious philosopher makes a conscious attempt to live out their worldview. Okay, now under this criteria, I think a lot of people out there, you would agree with me, are to one degree another philosophers. Well, okay, let's see if you recognize some philosophers. Any takes? You're not going to know this guy. You know his name when you hear it. Calvin. Who? Calvin. Uh, good, good choice, but no. 
J.J. Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, known as the father of the French Revolution. He was a political philosopher. Okay, but most of you probably heard this guy's name, right? You know that dude. Okay? This guy's a more contemporary one. I didn't know what he looked like until I went and looked for his picture. Okay? This is the World War II era philosopher Carl Jaspers. Great existential philosopher. Okay, very important. For people that were in the counterculture hippie movement, okay, this guy was all important. This guy led the thought, along with a few other Americans in the late 50s and the 60s, that set the stage for the whole counterculture movement. Okay? This guy is one that most Christians should know about. <clears throat> you probably don't recognize him, but maybe you'll recognize his name, Albert Schweitzer. Anybody know the name Albert Schweitzer? The great humanitarian and medical jungle doctor of World War I. He was Alsatian, theologian, preacher, organist, medical doctor, and went to Africa, spent 70 years in Africa in a medical clinic there. He was a great philosopher, though, wrote a lot of books also, monumental in our day and time. Well, here's another philosopher. You don't know her. I don't know her either. Look at her face. Look at her surroundings. You think this person poses honest questions to life? Here's another one. I don't know that guy either. You look in that guy's face, though, and you know that there's something really serious that this guy is posing questions about life and who he is. These, by the way, are both uh, Depression-era images. This one I'd never seen before, but the other one with the woman and her ch child, right? Some of you might have seen. That's a pretty, pretty popular Depression-era migrant worker uh, photograph. You know, so what's the point here? The main point, man, in my view, is that even the man who digs a ditch is a philosopher. If he has a worldview and questions about who he is and what this is all about, he is a philosopher. Okay? He's thoughtful when he poses serious questions. Nothing more than that. The fundamental point is that philosophy and theology, or I'm going to use the word Christian teaching, deals with the same questions. What is the meaning of life, okay, is a faith question. It's also a philosophic question, okay? And the point is, is that the answers that the Bible gives wrestle with the same questions that philosophers wrestle with. A theologian, a Christian, proposes answers to the questions that the philosopher raises. Okay, the Bible gives answers to those kinds of questions. Remember, though, that, you know, there are other competing answers, the answers that the Bible gives is one of many. And our point in, in discussing things with people is not to absolutely persuade them without a question of a doubt okay, that this is the answer. Our job is to pose a reasonable answer that is competing in the marketplace of ideas, but the Holy Spirit takes it from there. If we do a poor job, though, at posing a reasonable answer, I think that is something that God holds us accountable to. Okay, but a credible, reasonable response is something that our friends and acquaintances are really deserving of. We're going to need to look at about four basic words here because these words have everything to do with those questions. Metaphysics, epistemology, ontology, and presupposition. Has anybody ever seen any of these words, even one of them? Look remotely familiar? Presupposition, okay. You know, I, I don't know about, you know, when I was in high school, I took courses in world literature as a junior and senior in high school, that I was dealing then with metaphysics and epistemology, okay, on the high school level. That was maybe the courses that I took. People learned different things, you know, there, there might be, but we need to talk about these a little bit. We're going to go through them quick, but talk about them a little bit, okay? Metaphysics is, the, is a division of physics that's concerned with the nature of reality. Let me put it this way to you, okay? It's a study of what exists outside the subjective world. Things that we can see that are concrete, tangible, we can agree with other people about those things. But what about the spirit world? What about things that go beyond objective reality? What exists outside of the physical? Okay? To put it simply, to ask this question, what exists? Metaphysics answers the question, what really exists? 
It's not complicated. Complicated word, simple idea. What exists? Epistemology. It's a study of the theory of nature and the grounds of knowledge, especially the limits and the validity of knowledge. Okay? In other words, how do we know what we think we know? You say God is real. How do you, I mean, I know you think that. How do you know that you think that? How do you know that what you think is right? That is strictly an epistemological question. The person that posed the question doesn't know that, okay? But it is. It's a question of how do we, based on our knowledge base, how do we know what we think we know, okay? <clears throat> Ontology is a branch of metaphysics that concerned with the relationship of beings, the relationship of what exists. You just need to know this word because it's one argument that we're going to come across here. Okay? Presupposition. To suppose something beforehand. Duh. Okay? Presuppose. Okay? Suppose something before. Let's use this definition, though. Okay? It's required as an antecedent or logic. Antecedent in logic or fact. Something that somebody believes before they even pose a question. Presuppositions are all important, and I want to look at some of the presuppositions in those big five. Okay, what are they? Okay, presuppositions of the meaning of life. Somebody asks, what is the meaning of life? There are loads of presuppositions that go into that question for somebody to ask you that question. First of all, it has the idea that life is supposed to actually have a meaning. Okay, so that person actually has that belief. They haven't said they have that belief, but they do, if they pose the question. They believe that it's supposed to have a meaning. Not everyone believes that, by the way. But you know that. Not everyone believes that life has a meaning. But somebody that asks that question, you know, believes that life has a meaning. Having a transcendent meaning of life suggests that there's something like eternal values. You know, if life is supposed to have a meaning, that means that when it's over and we're gone in our graves, that somehow there was some transcendent value that our life is supposed to have. Like there's something like an eternal value that goes beyond our living here in space and time. That person doesn't tell you, gosh, I have transcendent values that are actually eternal, that transcend space and time. They don't tell you that when they're asking you this question, but that's what they believe. That is a presupposition to them asking that question, okay? They're also assuming here for the serious person that asks it that not finding the meaning of life results in some form of unrest, some form of neurosis, you know? Like if we can't find the meaning of life, it's futile. And it would be the worst thing for us to die without finding what the meaning is, okay? So it has built into it like some, some angst, you know, some fear that a person has, that we really have to find out what this meaning is. Those are all great presuppositions, right? You have a lot in common based on those presuppositions with somebody that asked that question. What about presuppositions of, you know, why is there so much suffering, okay? What's going on in a person's mind before they even ask that question? Well, one of the things is it actually assumes that God is responsible for the suffering. It doesn't say that. But, you know, I mean, if God is so all-powerful, how can we have so much suffering? You know, indirectly, they're assuming that God is the one that's responsible for the suffering. Okay? It assumes that God's role is that of legislature, you know? This is one of the conflicts that people have. See, they don't like a God that mandates things. But when it's convenient, like when, you know, we talk about suffering, well, then they want a God that would mandate something to blot out all the suffering. Oh, but when it comes to dealing with people, you're not so comfortable with the idea of a God that mandates things. Okay, but part of this idea is that God is a legislator and ought to mandate certain things. It assumes also that God is indifferent to pain and suffering. You know, what about Christianity's claim that Jesus is the only way? What are some of the ideas that go behind that? Well, it's the notion, actually, that there's more than one way.
why, what, what reason do we have for believing that there should be more than one way? Well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, one of my opponents, I'm challenging. You know, they were going to assume that there ought to be more than one way. Our culture teaches us there ought to be more than one way. Well, where did that idea come from, actually? That there ought to be more than one way. Okay? That's a presupposition that is out there in general in the culture. Okay? And there's also this notion that there are alternative ways that are equally good. You know, where in the world did that idea come from? that life ought to have alternative ways in terms of ideas and beliefs, and all of them are equally good. Where did that idea come from? But it's programmed into people, okay? That's their presupposition. <clears throat> all right, I think I hammered on this point. You get the idea, right, of the importance of the presuppositions. Let's start you know, looking at, at, at some of the questions one-on-one -on -one about you know, what is the meaning of life, okay? Um, look. <clears throat> There are a lot of cultural answers to this question, and again, right, the point is we need to pose a credible one, a credible one. But you need to be aware that there are, lot, there are lots of answers to this question that are out there. All kinds of wackos are peddling all kinds of ideas in the marketplace of ideas, you know? It really, it's, a, it's a bazaar out there, okay? It's a Lebanese bazaar of ideas, okay? And there's a lot of peddlers of all kinds of ideas. Believe it or not, though, I think actually that we ought to have a stand at the bazaar, okay? We ought to have a table and put out our wares and put out our goods, and we ought to be one of the ones to participate in the marketplace of these ideas. Well, <clears throat> again, I want to look at the importance of the presupposition here. I want to hammer this point once more home. This is a question by C.S. Uh, uh, quote by C.S. Lewis. When I was an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. Again, okay, it's the suffering issue, right? The suffering issue proved the fact that there was no God. But how I got this idea, or how had I got this idea of just and unjust? Where did the idea come from of just and unjust? A person does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. You know, atheism turns out to be far too simple, he said. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it had no meaning. Okay? So even being able to pose the question, in his view, the presupposition of posing the question pointed to the idea that there was something deeper behind this than atheism suggests. Does anybody know Monty Python's version of the meaning of life? You guys are too young for this, probably. Okay. You know, I, I, maybe this is from the '70s. You guys, have you ever heard of you know any of the Mel Brooks movies? Blazing Saddles. Okay, they're spoofs, they're jokes, right? This is along the same line, the Monty Python movie. But he has one that's called The Meaning of Life. Okay, it's a total joke. Okay, but there was a reason why he made that movie a total joke. Okay. The message is clear. The meaning of life is a total joke. Okay? The meaning of life is a total joke. That was Monty Python's version. Okay? I'm not advocating you see the movie, by the way. It's stupid. It's a waste of your time. But I'm just saying that this guy peddles these kinds of ideas. Okay? <clears throat> well, you know, there's actually even several competing ideas from within the Bible. I don't want to say the word competing ideas, but, you know, what about Solomon's version? Any of you guys know Solomon's version? Of the meaning of life? Anybody read Ecclesiastes? You know, in the last chapter of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is a great philosopher, by the way. If you read Ecclesiastes, he poses standard philosophic questions that all those other guys, J.J. Rousseau, Carl Jaspers, Albert Schweitzer, they all pose the same exact questions that Solomon did. Okay? And Solomon, you know, sums it up this way. You've got to read his whole argument, okay? But he sums it up this way in the end. Let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment and with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Okay? So Solomon would say, you know, the meaning of life is that we're all going to be called into judgment one day. Uh, I, I, 
I think that is one aspect of what the Bible teaches the meaning of life is. But I don't believe it's the whole thing, by the way. The Bible teaches other things about the meaning of life that I wanted to point out to you. I don't know if you've ever looked at Psalm 16 in terms of the meaning of life, but this is a really, really beautiful psalm. You don't think about this in terms of the meaning of life, but try for a minute as we walk through this. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord. What's the meaning of life? I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night seasons. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. Is that a beautiful description of what the believer's meaning of life is? I mean, this is totally awesome. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life, for in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. You know, there, there's a great confession of faith that summed this up. It's the Westminster Confession, the short confession. Once upon a time, all, all Sunday school kids had to learn this in England. There's like 97 points. You want to graduate from Sunday school? You've got to learn by heart the 97 questions and the 97 answers to the questions. Okay, This question number one, I think it's beautiful. What is the chief end of man? Right? It asks the same question. What's the meaning of life? What's the chief end of man? It's basically the same question. Here's the answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Not too many Christians have the concept in their mind of the meaning of life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You know what? That's too bad, actually. I think that more of us need to think about Psalm 16 and this more seriously, that our chief end is to glorify God and to find out how do you live in such a way that you enjoy him forever. I'll tell you, when other people pose answers to the meaning of life, they don't do too well. Let me tell you, okay? They don't do too well. In terms of, you know, a positive, life-changing outlook, this kind of an answer, I mean, to be honest with you, rises above the answers that other people give. You know, you got to learn to wrestle with them. And, the, you know, don't think if you tell them this, you're not going to come back at you with something or other. They will, right? But that's fine, you know? That's, this is not about winning an argument with them. This is about just giving a credible answer. I want to go into one now that was going to be a little bit more systematic. How do we know that the Christian God is real? Okay? Those were not that way that I just showed you right now is simply responding by what the Bible says and an interpretation of what the Bible says. Absolutely valid method. Okay? But you can't always do that. I could answer that question that way because of the presuppositions of the person. They believed in transcending values. They believed in eternal values that went beyond life as if there was a God out there that defines what transcending values are. The person that asked this question, how do you know that the Christian God is real, has no concept of a God. No concept of the Bible. You can't argue Bible. I'm using the word argument, right? But I don't mean argue, right? I mean, you can't pose a biblical answer to this because it won't mean anything to this person. They can say, so what? Yeah, but the Bible says, so what? You, you, I mean, you're gonna, you have to deal with the so what's because they don't accept biblical authority. So we're going to look at this one in a little bit different way. Okay? <clears throat> so, of course, you know this. They're competing metaphysical ideas. You know what? I use the word metaphysical. They're competing metaphysical ideas. Look, how do we know that the Christian God is real? What is real? What exists? Okay? This is a metaphysical question. It deals with what really exists. They're competing ideas to this. Okay? Corporate America has its version of what's real. 
What's the meaning of life and what's real? You guys might not remember this one anymore. Remember that one? Coke is the real thing. What is the meaning of life? Because Coke is the real thing, drink Coke. Okay? That is what it's all about. Well, there are a lot of different slogans out there in advertising, right? People want it, you know. I was digging some of these up in the past. Some of them are pretty funny, actually, if you look at these slogans from the past. Okay? But a lot of them are trying to convince people of what their values ought to be. That's exactly what this is doing, by the way, right? You know, it's not just advertisement for Coke. It's trying to convince people what their values ought to be, you know? I'm going to whip through some of these formal arguments, okay? The ontological argument, first cause argument, argument from design, moral argument. The idea here is, I don't want you to memorize these. I, I just want you to get a grasp. The point is, there are formal ways of discussing this thing. That's what you need to know. You might say them here for the first time, but there are other ways that you can find out what these arguments are of deciding what is real, okay? And I'm going to really whip through these because I don't want to... In fact, I'm going to do it like this here, okay? The ontological argument <clears throat> seeks to prove the existence of God from the laws of lo logic alone. It argues that when we grasp the concept of God, we can see that God's non-existence is impossible. So for people, as a, you know, they would argue that there is no God on this line, they would say, well, you know, you just haven't caught the idea yet. But once you get the idea, there's no turning back. Once you accept about what it means that God is there and what the consequences of that is, you're going to see that that is the only that is the only way. This argument, if it's successful, demonstrates the existence of a perfect being that could not possibly fail to exist. Okay, the first cause for the cosmological argument seeks to prove the existence of God from the fact that the universe exists. This is a strong one, by the way. It's an old one, but it's a very strong one. The universe came into existence at some point in a distant past. Nothing can come into existence, though, unless there was something to bring it into existence. In other words, nothing comes from nothing. The something had to come from somewhere. You know, so where did the something come from? This argument, if it's successful, demonstrates that the existence of a creator that transcends time and that has neither beginning nor end. There are no one of these arguments that stand by themselves, by the way. I, I present these as a group because they should be as a group. Yeah. These are different ways to look at the same point. The teleologic argument, or the argument from design, um, this one, by the way, is really, really valid. I, I'm going to tell you about this in a minute here. It seeks to prove the existence of God from the fact that the universe is ordered. Not just that it exists, but that it has an order to it. Where did that order come from? The universe could have come about in many different ways, but it didn't. It came about this way. You know, there could have been many possible universes that could not have existed or carried life, but ours does. How did it come about so ordered? Uh, a year ago, I was at a lecture at Syracuse University by a, a, you know, a very well-known philosopher from the University of Pittsburgh, Greenbaum is his name, and he was taking on another Christian philosopher who had recent, I think the guy, the guy right now is uh, at the University of London, I can't remember exactly where he is, but he, he, he wrote another great paper that used this teleologic argument for an ordered universe to prove the, and these guys were going back and forth at it for about a year, back and forth, papers that they were publishing and writing in journals. journals. My point is, it's a very contemporary thing, okay? It's still out there. The moral argument seeks to prove the existence of God from the fact that there are moral laws. You know, all of us believe that there's some things that are really wrong. Some things are really wrong. I mean, molesting children is really wrong. There's some things that will somehow, when we see happen, you know, sends our backs up straight. And, and I mean, we're so mad because it, 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 um, <clears throat> it violates us to hear that something like that even really happened. Well, where do these things come from that violate us that way? C.S. Lewis wrote a great book called The Case for Christianity. 
that largely presents the moral argument for why, you know, there must be a God. Why? Because kids know that if you take each other's toys, that's wrong, right? A one-year-old knows that. You go and take their toy away, and that is wrong. Some things are mine, some things are yours, and this is mine. The argument says that those things that are built into us themselves are indications that God really exists. You know, there's also subjective or anecdotal arguments that one can bring besides the formal arguments. Of course, one can bring a personal faith experience. These are valid also, but mind you, you know, they are subjective, right? That means that this argument, you know, well, you had that experience, I didn't. So, you know, maybe your reality is different than ours. The formal approach is trying to say that, no, you know, this is valid for all of us. All of mankind, you know, lives with these arguments. But I don't want to undermine this because personal anecdotal testimony is also something that can be very powerful and very real. We, of course, have the witness of other personal faith experiences. It doesn't need to be ours, right? But other faith experiences that for us really convince us that God is there. And, of course, there are many historical arguments. You know, when people look back in history and say, wait a minute, you know what? I mean, okay, I'm a scientist. That's my background. Let me tell you something. The concept of science right now is a whole lot more consistent with Genesis than science was 100 years ago. You can take my word for it. In 1900, the conflict between science and the Bible was much stronger than it is now. By and large, especially physicists, when they're coming to look at how the creation came about, you know, they, they have by and large settled on a biblical framework. As an example, we accept now that the universe had a beginning. Genesis always taught that. Do you know that 100 years ago, science didn't believe that the universe had a beginning? The way they saw the stars in the heavens then looked like it was static. And a scientist in 1900 would have said that it was always that way. They couldn't argue where it came from, but they would have said it's always that way. Now, in the past 100 years, that framework is totally destroyed, and, and, and any credible science scientist accepts the fact that the universe had a beginning. There was a time zero. Genesis always taught that. So the historical arguments can be strong ones, actually. The problem of suffering. I'm whipping through this here. You guys know that. You know, it, We can talk about questions later, but I, I'm, I'm bombarding you on purpose. This is not by accident. Okay? I'm running you through the arguments. we got a fast pace here with what's going on because I, I kind of want to give you a jump start. That, that's on purpose to get kind of the full story. <clears throat> Look, the problem of suffering. You know... God permitted evil to enter into this world as a price of freedom. People don't build a link between suffering and evil. Okay, some bad things happen to good people that is not as a result of evil, but the majority of suffering in this life surely is as a result of evil. The fact of the matter is, though, that free will and God's love allows people to make choices. You know? So he allowed suffering to enter into this world as a price of free choice. It's something that we all have to learn with our children too, right? If you love them, you have to let them make their own choices. If you are going to mandate exactly what your children do, you in the end are not going to be loving them. Why? Because to love them and to respect them means that I love you enough and respect you enough to actually let you make your own mistakes, okay? That is a huge amount of love and trust that goes along with that. But God is the same way when he allowed evil into this world. But God became a human being and he entered into the suffering of his creation. This is what the Bible teaches. God became man and participated in the suffering that he knew was here. And by experience and sharing in the universe's suffering, he made redemption possible. These arguments, you don't catch what's going on here, but these arguments are challenging every one of the presuppositions that we discussed to this question. Let me go through them with you. Okay, he made it possible for all of the wrongs in the world to eventually be made right. 
let's go through exactly how this challenges each of the presuppositions. You know, the one was God mandates. No, this challenge is God allows. The second was, is that God is removed. No, this says God came close. The presupposition was, is that God was cold for allowing this. No, God offers help. So the way I'm answering this question challenges every one of the presuppositions. Very, very effective tool. If you guys haven't got that message by now, I'm doing a really bad job of trying to, trying to make that point clear to you. The historicity of Jesus and, uh, and the resurrection. You guys are going to like this, I think. Um, you know, it turns out that theologians and historians are generally agreed on the kinds of claims that Jesus made. You can take my word for it. There's no credible person out there that challenges what Jesus said. And they all agree that it was because of these claims that he was crucified. I mean, that is general agreement. It wasn't that way 100 years ago, by the way, but now there's general agreement that the claims of Jesus were indeed accurate. Okay? It's also generally accepted that <clears throat> following his crucifixion, his followers, who now included some that had not followed him previously, claimed that he had been risen from the dead. And there are approximately five biblical accounts. If you go through all of them and look at it, it, it must have been around about 500 people that claimed to have seen Jesus after he was crucified and rose again. And of course the point is, why should we doubt that historical claim? That 500 independent people said that they saw him. What is the reason for just writing that off and negating that? This is another really strong point. His followers preferred to die rather than retract their claims. I mean, they must have obviously believed this seriously enough that they were willing to lay their lives down. What is the reason for that? That they were willing to do that. That in and of itself points to the fact that what they experienced, they absolutely felt was real. This, of course, was the testimony of the new church. You know what? They're counter-arguments to each of these things. I just want to quickly run through them with you. The swoon theory. That's the guy's name, by the way. It's a swooning argument, in my view, but this is the guy's name. Swoon theory. Okay? Yes, it says he was crucified. Okay, that much is undeniable. But he survived the crucifixion. And when he was laid in the tomb, he was unconscious but alive. Then he resuscitated and escaped from the tomb and appeared to his disciples who mistakenly thought that he had been resurrected. Okay? This is one theory. Christians, the Christian apologist, though, you know, is going to be right back and say, wait a minute, you know what? The Romans knew what the buns they were doing, okay? <laughs> when they killed somebody, they knew whether or not they were dead, okay? You know, they did a good job at what they were doing. Furthermore, even if he had gone into the tomb, you know, the historical account is there was this huge stone that was rolled in front of the tomb. With the suffering that he endured from the crucifixion, how, how could he possibly get the stone away? You know, I mean... You know, sorry, okay, sorry, it's just, you know, it doesn't do anything. Okay, then there's this other one, the hallucination theory. I saw this, you know, this great debate of, uh, of an atheist that was trying to report this theory. His claim is that, you know, this denies the fact that Jesus appeared to his disciples. His disciples would have been so emotionally fraught, having seen their leader executed, uh, you know, what more natural thing should they imagine that they had seen him come back from the dead, you know? Well, you know, there were 500 people with varying degrees of relationship to the Lord Jesus that all simultaneously had the same hallucination. You know, furthermore, it's generally agreed that some people became his followers only after his crucifixion. So they would not have been emotionally attached as the immediate 12 disciples were. So why would they have been emotionally fraught to suddenly hallucinate these things? You know, so... Um, you know, then of course there's the conspiracy theory. There were no appearances of Jesus risen at all. Whether hallucinatory or not, the disciples made it all up. Well, if the disciples made it all up, this would have been the easy thing to disprove. They just find the body, right? They just find the body. They never could find the body. Furthermore, if this would have been conspiracy, why would all these people have been willing to you know, die martyr deaths for some theory that wasn't even true to begin with. 
you know, so of course there are counter arguments and counter counter arguments. I think the bottom line that I want to show to you is that, you know, these kinds of things, they're really desperate attempts. They're really desperate attempts to try to explain away something that has really been accepted as, as, as historical fact. And, you know, C.S. Lewis said is that, you know, Jesus lived and either you have to consider him a liar or he was a lunatic or he was the son of God. But you've got no other choices. Those are the three. A liar, a lunatic, or the son of God. And sometimes people hide you know, behind these kinds of things without pressing them to the fact that, no, you've got to do something with Jesus. You've got to do something with him. Okay? He's got to be one of those three to you. Which one is it? Okay, what about Christianity's elitist claims? You know, we're the only way. That's what elitism means, right? The only way. Well, I kind of tip you off um, a little bit about ready. We're going to go, what are we going to do? We're going to go after the presuppositions. Right after the presuppositions. You know, why should there be more than one way? Where does this idea come from in our culture right now that there are many ways that lead to Rome for everything? Where does that idea come from? I could trace back to, actually, I, I know the answer to that. There's no time. But I could trace back to you philosophically exactly where these ideas came from. Of thesis, antithesis, that wound up developing into synthesis. That, you know, I mean, it, it can clearly be... But this is in our culture now. That's the point. You, know? you can take a mixture of something good and a mixture of something bad, put it together and come out with something good. Okay, That's what's there in the culture. But why should that be? That's not the Judaic biblical view that there should be more than one ways. Actually, the Bible teaches that there is an egalitarianism of people and elitism of ideas. Let me, let me tell you first what our culture teaches. Our culture teaches is that all ideas are equal and some people are better than others. But ideas are the same. No, the Bible teaches the exact opposite. The Bible teaches that people are the same. And there's some ideas that are just better than others. That's what the Bible teaches. And that this idea of Christianity's elitist view is simply the right idea. It's the good idea. Right from the Ten Commandments is that you, know, you can have no other God before me. Christianity is not, it's like oil and vinegar. It's not something that can be shared. God says he can't be shared with something else. And Christianity cannot take views of other non-Christian thinking and blend it into this new thing and, you know, like fusion. Right now there's fusion. Does anybody know what fusion is with gourmet cooking? You know what that is, fusion? It's like when you take a, a, an oriental dish and then you take barbecue and you take all this stuff and you put it together and it kind of works, you know? Well, you know what? The cooks are being absolutely philosophic, okay? It's this idea of all these different things out there that you can wrap up and put together and it works. And people want that same thing out of Christianity. But, you know, <clears throat> we don't have to buy into that. You say, you know what? Well, you think there needs to be more than one way. Where do you get that idea from? Your idea, if, if you think my idea is irrational, your idea is just as irrational. You're just coming at it from a different way. What about the question of epistemology? You know, how do we know what we think we know? You know, well, you Christians, you know, you guys think you know it all. You know, I mean, how do you really know what you think that you know? The answer is Christianity doesn't have this problem. Why? Because, you know, we believe in a God that told us what the answers were. The atheist who doesn't believe in a God has to go back and ask himself, how do I know that? And then if I do know that, you know, how do I raise my kids and how do I deal with my wife and how do I know all these things are right or whether they're wrong? Christianity doesn't have that problem. Why? Because it's based on propositional revelation, a revelation that's proposed. Genesis is like so incredibly important when God told Abraham how everything came into being because Genesis has a general revelation and a specific revelation. God told us the framework for what we know. So we just don't have the problem. It is not our concern. You know, we don't have to have it right because our point is that God has it right. And God communicated to us what's right. 
So we didn't have to reinvent it. He communicated to us once and for all time. So the Christians simply don't have epistemological problems. Quick summary. Okay, God's revelation to man is not exhaustive, but it is sufficient to satisfy our curiosities. With any of the philosophical questions that people raise, the Bible doesn't tell us everything about those things, but it tells us enough to satisfy our knowledge. You know, the Bible is, as an example, not a book about angels. It doesn't give us exhaustive information about angels, but it tells us true things about angels. And the things that it tell us, tells us is sufficient for us to have a concept of what angels are and the role that they play and how God uses them and how they potentially might even one day might relate to us. Challenging the presuppositions of the questions is absolutely critical, I think, in trying to make some kind of reasonable headway. And we're not out there to beat the people that ask the questions. We just want to give a respectable, credible result and Christianity can hold its own. On the highest levels, it can hold its own in the marketplace of ideas. And it's not something that we have to feel inferior about. We've got to get better at knowing how to make the argument. Okay? But in the end, it's just as valid as any other ideas that are out there. Um, I know I was blowing through this. Any, any, any points, any questions, any comments? By the way, I'd be happy to talk about this independently later. There's nothing sacred about this one hour that we happen to spend with each other. We're here at camp for a whole week. But this, is, this was sort of the short course, 101, totally bury you in some ideas. But I, I hope that you found... Let me get a raise of hands. Who, who has found this helpful in some way or another? Okay? Who did it not help? Who doesn't care? Okay, the day is won. I declare victory.